The gospel is a global invitation to a scattered population. And the way that that gospel came to be understood and proclaimed in the early church was of major curiosity and importance to a wealthy benefactor whose name was Theophilus, such that he was willing to hire a physician named Luke, a very learned, educated man, to go out and to spend as long as it took to interview people who were eyewitnesses to the events surrounding the life and ministry, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, and the beginning of the early church, and then report back to him all that he had found. And that report, that dissertation, is what you have in your Bible as Luke and Acts. Two volumes, one book, one author, one publisher, one benefactor, one person named Theophilus who was funding it, and one Luke, a physician who went about interviewing people. Why? Because Luke himself was not an eyewitness to these accounts. Luke was not somebody who said, I was there when these things happened, and so I'm the one who is going to advance our agenda. No, it's interesting. He wasn't there. He had to interview the people who were there. He had to compile the evidence, and so he did that objectively, scientifically. And the people in those days were no less concerned with truth than we are today. They were no less skeptical of the supernatural than we are today. They were no less intelligent and discerning than we are today. And so, because the global phenomenon of Christianity is absolutely undeniable, we do have to show respect to this ancient document that was used to compile that history. And even if you've wrestled with Christianity as to whether or not to believe that the claims of the Bible are true, I do hope that by the end of this, uh, another week in this book, that you will go away from here again, at least brought face to face with the testimony. And you may choose not to believe it, but it is there and it is not something that can be ignored. Now, the portion of scripture that we're going to look at today is what is commonly known as Pentecost. And so if you look down, beginning in chapter 2, what we're going to do is read this section. It's the first 13 verses of chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. This is God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own 
native language. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying, they are filled with new wine. We long to see the churches filled from all the chosen race that with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. The reason we sung that hymn this morning was because the hymn writer envisions for us what it is like for the great ingathering of people from all over the world to find their place at the glorious banquet table of the Lamb as he and his bride enjoy this time together, feasting forever on the best food and wine, free of charge, flowing in glory forever. And the great lavish love of God displayed for us the choicest of his stores, as the poet puts it, overwhelming us with his love and his grace and his compassion. That's what we long for. That's what we want to see happen. And that's essentially a consequence of Babel. You see, what happened at Babel was that everybody came together and they said, we're going to stop migrating. We're going to camp out right here in the plains of Shinar and we are going to build a ziggurat, this big sort of pyramid structure and we are going to build it higher than anything else and we're going to establish a safe and secure place and here we are going to make our name great. And God came down and he didn't blow up the building. Uh, he didn't send fire down from heaven and consume them all, like on Mount Carmel. Uh, he didn't bring some judgment and plague so that they all suffered. Instead, he simply came down. He condescended. He interrupted in a gracious way the plans that man had that would have destroyed them, and he confuses their languages. He makes them all wake up the next morning speaking a different language language. And as a consequence of that, the first thing that they did was they found each other. Now, if you've ever done traveling, you know what this is like. You go to another country where they don't speak your language. And if you can locate somebody else who speaks English, now for me, it's just English. I know some of you are multilingual, not me. I need to find the English. But when I find the English person, what is it? There's an immediate connection, isn't there? 
There is an immediate fellowship. That person might have nothing else at all in common with me. Nothing. But because we speak the same language, we can communicate. We have this instant bond. This is what happened at Babel. And as a result, the people came together. They began living together, communing together. Uh, This is why they spread out all over the world to find a place where their tribe could settle because they spoke the same language. Pentecost is the reversal of Babylon, of Babel. It is the reversal of Babel. Pentecost is when God comes down and he causes an event that brings the scattered nations from all over the world into one place so that they would all hear the message in a language they could understand. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit, have their hearts changed so that they will make his name great. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 2. That's part of the big story. That's where it fits into redemptive history. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is make a case that here in this particular passage, what you're going to see are signs of supernatural power to witness. These are signs of supernatural power to witness, and there are three of them, okay? They come from God, they work through people, and they bless the world. It's in your bulletin. They come from God, they work through people, and they bless the world. Let's look at the first one because you have it there in the original section. We're talking about these mighty works of God that were displayed, these mighty works of God that were declared, Remember, we're in a context where the diversity that existed as a result of the different languages, that diversity remains, but the language issue is overcome. Now, just to give you a little bit of context here, this is a time in the Jewish calendar, 50 days after Passover. 50 days after the Passover event where everybody came to remember the time when God gave the Jewish people a lesson And if they obeyed him and they killed a lamb and they put the blood on the doorpost in the upper part of the door, the angel of death would pass over that home and the firstborn would not be killed. That's why it's called Passover. 40 days after that, the Lord ascended. 50 days after that, you have here this particular feast. And this feast is gathering together. It's called Pentecost. The word penta is where you get 50 from. 50 days after, and it was the the feast time. For the Jews, and they would celebrate the first fruits. Now, in case you're not a farmer, I want to just give you some background. Uh, and, I, and I learned this from reading, not because I'm a farmer, if you know me. First fruits are literally the first fruits. Like, it's literally the first of the crop. In this case, it was the wheat harvest. They would bring it in, and they would celebrate, because if the first of the harvest was good, it usually meant the rest of the harvest would be good, too. And they would bring this in. Uh, This is where the tithe would come from. Remember in the Old Covenant, you had a tithe? A tithe means 10%. In fact, there were three tithes. There was one tithe that was given so that the religious services could continue. There was a tithe that was given that you were required to spend 10% of your income to have a party during these festivals. And then another tenth of your income was given every three years to help the poor. So on average, 22.33% a year was given. So it was way more than 10%. But this particular time, this tithe would come in, it would be given. And 
in this feast, they were celebrating what God was doing in bringing the crop in. And the imagery is pretty easy to see the parallel to. What God is going to do is at this feast of Pentecost, he is not just going to bring in the first fruits of the crop of the field. He's going to bring in the first fruits of the souls that would be saved. So it's a pretty awesome situation. And we see that here at the beginning. This power that is going to be given to bear his witness is seen beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost, as we just described, arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, why were they all together in one place? It was because they had obeyed the Lord's instruction after the ascension to go back into Jerusalem and to wait for the coming power of the Holy Spirit. And I know that because of what Luke had said earlier in the first volume of his history. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Luke chapter 24. I just want you to see this so you can jot it down if you'd prefer. But uh, Luke chapter 24 and in verse 49. This is Jesus speaking. He says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Why are they in the city? They're in the city because they're waiting to be clothed from power on high. God the Son saying this will come from God the Father, God the Spirit being sent. It's a Trinitarian work of God in preparing his people for the proclamation of the gospel. And so the first thing we see here is that the ingathering of souls is the true meaning for Pentecost. And so you could say that by the time we leave today, I hope you are all Pentecostal. Pentecostal in the sense that you're evangelistic. Pentecostal in the sense that you see that this Pentecost was a a vivid depiction of what God is doing to this very day as he continues to bring that gospel out to all of those who are called to be his. They were all gathered together. They were in one place. It's a very general term, the word place. We don't know exactly where they are. And suddenly... There came from heaven the sound like a mighty or literally a violent rushing wind. Now again, the English is so lame here in its translation. I just want to say it's a violent and it's a rushing wind. The word elsewhere is translated bringing. It's a violent bringing wind. It's a violent wind that brings something. Imagine, if you will, looking out over a field during a tornado The only reason you know that tornado exists is because it has picked up something and it's bringing something. Like maybe your neighbor's barn. It's visible because it's gathering something up. And that's kind of the picture here, that this this wind, this violent, rushing wind is coming in and it is bringing something. John chapter 3, verse 8, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he talks about the Spirit of God being a wind like this. You never know where it goes when it comes, but it brings something. And so it says here that as a result, it being that violent rushing wind filled the entire house. Again, the word house is a broad application. We don't know exactly where they were. They might be in an upper room, but based on the rest of the context, my guess is they were somewhere else in a larger open space. We know there were 120 of them based on the testimony in Luke. So it was a large group. All these disciples, they were sitting down, they were waiting, and into this place where they were, the mighty rushing wind came, and it found them where they were sitting, and verse 3, 
divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Just a couple notes here. First of all, it's as fire. These weren't literal tongues of fire. It wasn't actual fire. It was something as tongues of fire. And they were dividing. You could literally translate this and tongues of fire were dividing themselves. This fire comes down and it's dividing itself from person to person to person. It's splitting and it's spreading around. It's becoming evident to everybody that this, this resting of the Holy Spirit was for each and every individual. It comes from one source, divided up into all of these people equally. And I love the, the play on words here. Luke says that it came to them as they were sitting and the tongues of fire came down and sat on them. That's what the word rested means. Isn't that great? They're sitting, God comes, and the Spirit sits on them as these tongues of fire. And notice there, it says each one of them, each of the 120, men, women, everybody in that group, equally endowed with the power of the Holy Spirit. But what's so fascinating to me is the sound. It's, it's the sonic boom of divine arrival. And that massive sound is what draws people in. What draws in all the people surrounding them, whether it was a house or whether they were on Solomon's porch, wherever they were gathered, what is bringing people in is the sound of the wind, the sound of the violent arrival of God. And they all come in and they surround the place where they hear this. And that leads us to the second sign of supernatural power. It works through people. Number one, it comes from God. Number two, it works through people. Look at verse four. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a passive verb. It means that it happened to them. They were filled because somebody filled them. This is different than in Ephesians 5.18 where it says be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's, that's an active middle verb. That's where you're saying fill yourself as it were with the Holy Spirit. This is, they were filled with it. This was something that came upon them. They didn't ask for it. They weren't expecting it. They didn't do some trick to bring it on. They didn't encourage one another with some sort of plan. Oh, if you do this, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. No, it came upon them, rushed upon them unexpectedly and perfectly and completely and for a purpose. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. They began to speak in other languages. And we know that because everybody who was hearing the gospel preached heard it in their language. It's also very common in the book of Acts for languages to be incorporated by the author when he is trying to make his point that the gospel is spreading. In fact, every single time that the gospel jumps the freeway and starts burning in another part of the world, it is accompanied by the gift of languages. Now you'll recall from last week maybe that we said that this mission of the gospel going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth was accomplished. In fact, we know that because in chapter 6 and verse 17, we saw that everything had reached Jerusalem with the gospel. And then in the next chapter, you'll just notice if you want to follow along with me. 6-7, six, seven, six, seven, we have this. 
And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And then we flip over a few pages, go over to uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. So we have the Holy Spirit arriving there. We have the spread of the gospel there. We know from Acts chapter 13 that after the men had been called in and were essentially being persecuted for preaching the gospel, the response is very simple. They're going to obey God and not man. Verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I say that the tongues were a very important part of that, and that's how they knew that it was going from one place to the next. I'll give you an example. Look at chapter 9 again in the book of Acts. Go back there. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 44, it says... While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. How do we know that? For they were hearing them speaking in languages and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have done? You see, the evidence that the Holy Spirit had come was the speaking in languages, yes, but not as some indication that you have reached some higher level of spiritual awareness, but rather that the gospel was making a leap from one people group to another, from the Jews to the Gentiles. And then it goes even further now into those under the baptism of John. Go back to the book of Acts 19. Acts 19, this whole section from 1 to verse 10 talks about how Paul comes across those who had been baptized by John the Baptist, but had not been baptized by the baptism of Jesus. Not that Jesus himself baptized people, but his baptism, which you'll recall from your study of the ministry of John the Baptist, was a baptism of the Holy Spirit. What did that look like? Paul describes it. He says, have you been baptized? And they say, yes, but only into John's baptism. And so Paul clarifies what that means. Then verse six, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, having baptized them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they were speaking in languages and prophesying. There it was, speaking another language than prophesying. You see, one of the many gifts that came with the power of the Holy Spirit was to speak a language that wasn't your own and to prophesy. Prophesying wasn't speaking something that was gonna happen in the future. There were lots of prophets. Philip's daughters, for example, four women who were women prophets, they would go out and they would teach the people God's word from God's word. They weren't pastors of churches. They weren't elders in churches, but they were equally prophets along with those who had been given the gift. When you get to 1 Corinthians, Paul tries to put some limits on this gift of praying and prophesying within the church. Culturally speaking, the women had to have their head covered, the men could not have their head covered, but it was expected that within the church, the people were engaged in these gifts of using these languages and prophesying. But he says, it is more important to prophesy than it is to speak in one of these languages anyways. He says, give me five words of prophecy 
And I'm going to do way more for you as a church than if I spoke 10,000 words in a foreign tongue that you didn't understand. Because by that point in the life of the church, they had to have somebody else in the church with a gift of interpretation in order to explain to everybody else what the person was saying. You see, it was not an efficient way to get the gospel across. But he always works through people. In Jerusalem in Acts 2.4, Judea and Samaria, Acts 10. 44 to 48, the ends of the earth, Acts 19. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we read, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. One spirit unifying us all. Signs of supernatural power. Number one, it comes from God. Number two, it works through people. Number three, it blesses the world. Look at verses five and following. Now, I know this is a lot, and you might be thinking, how does this fit in? It's just a list of people. Well, before I get into it, let me explain to you what's going on here. They're very specific now. Luke, Luke is, Luke is a, a scientist. He's a doctor. He's an educated man. He is doing something very particular. He is saying, I want you all to imagine a map of the world, and I'm going to use English terms, English names for nations and countries, so that you can be thinking about it the way that they would be thinking about it. What he is going to do right now is he is going to give a mental map to people and in their minds from where Jerusalem was, if you go towards the east, you have what is today modern Iran, Iraq, and Syria. If you go to the northwest, you have modern day Turkey. And if you go to the southwest, you have modern day Egypt and Libya, North Africa. He's using the same language. And what he is saying is that God is drawing in his people from being scattered all over the known world at that time. He is reversing what went on during the captivities. He's reversing what was going on during the forced migrations. He is calling his people in. He is bringing in the first fruits. Remember, they're the first fruits. There was going to be many, many more in all of these places. But he says, I'm going to bring them in just this first time, this first group of them. And I'm going to make sure they go out and they bring that gospel all around the rest of the known world at that time. So with that in mind, let's read it. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, what sound? The massive sound of the Holy Spirit descending. The multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. You would be bewildered too. Because you would be able to look at that person and say, I know for certain that you do not know my language. And, and there, there was no language software back then. There was no Google Translate. There, there, there was no Duolingo. Like nobody's out there on their phone, you know, trying to brush up on their foreign languages. This was an absolutely supernatural work of God. And it's manifest and it's bewildering. And they were amazed and astonished. They were saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? That's a bit of an insult. A bit of an insult. These are a bunch of Galileans. I mean, I mean can you think of a group of people within, within, the, within America? Can you think of a group of people from a particular state or a particular region? And by identifying people as being from that region, you are saying something that's derogatory to them. Can you think of a place, I'm not going to ask you to, to, to shout it out, 
because you know someone in here is from that place. And then I'm going I'm to do something maybe that's a little bit humbling. You know what people around the rest of the country who comes to mind when they think of that? They think of people from California. So we are those people. So let's use us as an example. It would be like, aren't these Californians? They don't know anything. They can't be bilingual. These are Californians? Why are they speaking my language? They've never learned my language. It was a bit of an insult. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? If there's any debate over what these were, languages or not, that should settle it. They hear it in their own native language. The response is amazing. And it's from a large group of people. And as I said before, you got to picture it this way. The Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia. That's Iraq, Iran, and Syria. During the two captivities, remember the Assyrians took the northern tribes away and then the Babylonians took the southern tribes away? Well, that's this area. And then you had Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. That's modern-day Turkey, northeast, southwest. And then you had Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. It was a major city in those days. This is all of North Africa. As well as visitors from Rome, there were Jews, there were proselytes. Those were Jewish converts, people like the Ethiopian eunuch. We'll come across him later in the book of Acts. There were Cretans and there were Arabians. And we hear all of them speaking our own language, telling us the mighty works of God. An incredible reversal, not just a babble, but a reversal of the captivities, a reversal of the dispersions, pulling everybody in so that he could send everybody out. They were all amazed, literally beside themselves. They were perplexed. They had no way out. They were like people trapped in a maze of logic. They were saying to one another, what does this mean? They are beside themselves. They are wandering in this maze of logic. None of it makes any sense. What could it mean? Luke, you'll remember, advances his argument in his letters, in his writings. He advances his argument in the narrative through questions. Luke acts as a piece of writing. It should be read as a piece of literature. You know, there's an argument. There's a narrative. There's dialogue. And in this, he advances the argument through questions. What does it mean? It drives the narrative. It's really an invitation. There's no resolution, by the way, in, in this particular narrative. It's going to come in the next section where Peter delivers his sermon and 3,000 are saved. But he sets it up for us. What is going on? Verse 13, but others said they are filled with new wine. Now, clearly this was not the right response. Clearly. But let's dig into it just a little bit. We have just a minute. When it says that the people thought they were filled with new wine, the better translation is the word sweet wine. It's actually the Greek word glucos, from which we get, you are such an intelligent congregation. I love speaking to you. But it's only, only used here. Sweet wine. Now you might say, oh, well, sweet wine must be just grape juice. Well, it's actually the same word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, that talks about the wine that was Noah's problem when he got off the ark and drank too much. So obviously it's intoxicating. And they were imagining that these people were intoxicated, and Peter thought they thought they were intoxicated because in his sermon he begins by saying, by the way, we're not intoxicated. We're not drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. So it, it, clearly they thought these men were drunk. They were babbling on. 
So why were they hearing it like this? And here's, here's the answer. Why were these people hearing a bunch of drunken babblers while everybody else was hearing the gospel in their own language? Is it because the power of the Holy Spirit was not powerful enough to get to their language? Like the Holy Spirit hadn't factored in that there might be someone there who was speaking that language? Maybe these people weren't normally going to be there. They got a really good deal on airfare from Helsinki, and they just they weren't planning on being in town, but you know, we're just there, but no one had planned for us. No, of course not. You know why they didn't hear it? It's because God had not opened up their ears. The power of the gift of languages wasn't just that a person could preach and speak the language that they had never learned. It was that God had opened up the ears of the person who was hearing it. The reason these people think that everyone's babbling is because God had not opened up their ears to hear the truth of the gospel. And they concluded as a result that these people are crazy. So what we need to realize here is that the plan to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth as represented in all of these individuals who are then going to take it back to wherever they came from is not a guarantee that every single person who hears it is going to believe. It's not very much different than what happened on the mountain in Exodus 33 when God came down again, this time to give his people his law. There's a pattern here. Remember, there was Passover, and then there was Exodus, and then there was a covenant, and then there was the giving of the law, and then there was the presence of God, and then his spirit comes to empower people. This pattern that that repeats over and over again. In that case, the people said, when God showed up, we don't want to go up on the mountain to talk to God. And so what they did is they sent Moses up there. Moses, you go up, you talk to God, you be the mediator. And what we have in this particular case is that the Passover was Christ, the Passover lamb. The exodus, moving people out from their captivity. Covenant, Jesus says, there's a new covenant in my blood. The giving of the law, the the testimonies, the, the words of God that were being written by the apostles and the disciples. The very presence of God now forever through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and then the Spirit's power poured out in people so they can go and preach the gospel to the world. Acts 2, 1 to 13 describes those events 50 days after Passover. 50 days after where the ingathering of all of the fruit is made evident. This is always the message of the gospel. In fact, I just want to conclude with this short quote from J. Gresham Machen. I put it in the Weekender. Such a great way of summarizing this. He says in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, quote, the door of the household of faith is open wide to all. That door is the new and living way which Jesus opened by his blood. And if we really love our fellow man, we shall not go about the world with the liberal preacher trying to make men satisfied with the coldness of a vague natural religion, but by the preaching of the gospel, we shall invite them into the warmth and joy of the house of God. Christianity offers men all that is offered by the modern liberal teaching about the universal fatherhood of God, but... It is Christianity only because it offers also infinitely more. Brothers and sisters, let us 
go from this place as Pentecostals in our evangelism, demonstrating our confidence that the power to witness has already been spread to the ends of the earth, and now we just need to proclaim it and to trust the Lord to open up the ears of those that he plans to save. Our Father, we thank you for our time together this morning in your word, and I just ask that you would be gracious to us and through the indwelling power of the Spirit make these truths clear to us, fix them firm in our hearts and minds so that we understand. We thank you for this precious church and for the mindset that exists here that the ministry of the gospel as it spreads around the world is of vital importance. We lift up to you in particular, Scott and Michelle Cavondel and the ministry of Sue Refugio. As that ministry goes forth with everything from dealing with the physical needs of people, demonstrating your heart to care for the oppressed and the poor, to also working with them by giving the gospel in a language in a way they can understand, and then cooperating with local churches and pastors so they have a local church that they can be a part of and grow in. We thank you for the same work being done through SOS Ministries in Uganda. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful, not only to pray for these missionary efforts, Lord, but also to go as opportunity permits and to give and to support as you have given us the ability to. And Father, now as we prepare to lift up our voices and song, I ask that we just come from a standpoint, a place where we know even better now uh, what you are doing in the world and through the power of the gospel, that it comes from you, that it works through people, through unworthy sinners, but that it will accomplish its goal as you told Abram it would and that it would bless the nations, it would bless the world. May that be our goal and our desire because it is your design. In your name we pray. Amen.